This episode of the Dr. E Show is brought to you by the six-week super wellness program. Join us for a life-changing six-week guided journey where you will supercharge your energy, upgrade your life, and become your own best healer. Visit superwellness.com slash events for more information. That's superwellness.com slash events. And now, enjoy the show. Hello, this is Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan. Welcome to The Dr. E Show, a show exploring the frontiers of our human possibilities in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living, so that together we can awaken the best of ourselves and create our most joyful and fulfilling lives. If you've been listening to this show for a while, chances are that you've contemplated big questions like, is there life after death? Is remote viewing scientifically documented to be a real phenomenon? What about things like telepathy, psychokinesis, or distance healing? If these things are really real, what does it mean about the fundamental nature of our reality? What if just about everything we've been taught in our upbringing has been based on a false premise? What if everything we've been taught is actually backwards, or as Mark would call it, upside down? My guest today is number one best-selling author, Mark Gober. In 2016, his worldview was literally turned upside down when he was exposed to cutting-edge scientific research on consciousness, quantum physics, and interesting phenomena like telepathy and psychokinesis and near-death experience and distance healing and so much more. His new book, The End to Upside Down Thinking, beautiful cover, awesome title, has been endorsed by some of the greatest thinkers and pioneers of our generation, like two times Nobel Prize winning nominee, Dr. Evan Laszlo, chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Science, Dr. Dean Radin, New York Times bestselling author, Larry Dossie, celebrities like Goldie Hawn, and of course, it comes very highly recommended by yours truly, Dr. Edith Ubuntu-Chan. In my 20 years of exploring this kind of topics, Mark's book is the single most comprehensive tour of the science of consciousness that I have ever read. And he's also a super awesome guy, a fun, engaging, and eloquent speaker, which is why he's been invited to, I think, over 100 interviews and talks since the launch of his book just a few months ago. So he's a super popular and busy guy, and we're so blessed and so grateful to have him on the show today. So please... Help me in welcoming my dear friend, the ultra-smart Princeton grad, the partner at Sherpa Technology Group, and the author of The End to Upside Down Thinking, Mark Gover. Yay! Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It was a Thank beautiful you. introduction. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being on the show. It's all from the heart. I'm so impressed because we became friends just two years ago when you were starting this journey. And it's been a huge inspiration to me watching your journey unfold. For those of us new to your work, can you share the backstory? How a guy who is um, technology investment and advisor guy, 
a Princeton grad who was deeply seated in the material, rational, logical world, how you suddenly got into such a, what people would call a woo-woo topic. Yeah, it wasn't something that I ever thought I would get into, and I wasn't looking for it. Um, I stumbled across podcasts in August of 2016 um, that started talking about these topics, and it was the first time I had heard things like telepathy or psychic abilities or the ability to communicate with the deceased. These were just things that I'd never heard about beyond science fiction. And when I initially heard about these topics, I was interested enough to listen to more podcasts on those topics and would turn the podcasts on during my drive from San Francisco to the, the peninsula area. And there can be a lot of traffic on the 101 in the Bay Area. So I had lots of time to listen to podcasts. And, and after I heard enough people independently describe personal experiences that uh, were on those topics that I mentioned, I, I became very curious because I, I reasoned that either they were all lying and were somehow colluding behind the scenes, which didn't seem to make sense because they were all independently talking about these things, or they were all just delusional. So there was some kind of common delusion that people experienced, or maybe there was some truth to it. And when I looked at some of the scientific research from very credible places like the US government, like Princeton, like the University of Virginia, and many other places, I realized that it all kind of lined up. and it shifted my worldview drastically. And it was pretty disruptive for me to shift from being a, a conventional materialist thinker and thinking that life really has no meaning because if consciousness comes from our brain and when our brain turns off when our body dies, then our consciousness must go away. Mm -hmm. So it was hard for me to reason that there was any meaning to life beyond kind of rationalizing whatever we thought or wanted it to mean. So I went from that perspective, which is a pretty bleak and nihilistic view, to wait a second, Maybe consciousness continues when the body dies, and maybe there's a lot more going on than I ever realized. So take us on that journey of breaking your reality and then modeling a new reality. Because most of us, most listeners on this show have been exploring bits and pieces of these things, but you have synthesized a new model reality so beautifully. So can you take us on an educational journey on the old paradigm? and then how it started breaking for you and what that new paradigm is. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because part of the reason I wrote the book is so that people could go on the same journey that I went on, but hopefully they can do it in a more expedited and efficient manner than I did because I didn't really have a path to go down. I was just kind of looking, <clears throat> excuse me, for whatever research I could find. So for me, again, like I said, it started off with podcasts and then I started to read books and then I started to watch interviews on YouTube and it was, it was a scattered process, right? Oh, here, near-death experiences. Wait a second. These are people in cardiac arrest. They're clinically dead and yet they're having these lucid memories that are sometimes verified as being accurate. And I would have these like little nuggets. Initially, I was, I was kind of afraid to talk to anybody about it because it was so out there and i the communities that I've grown up in and have worked in don't talk about these things. So initially I wasn't comfortable. And if, if listeners are listening to this conversation and they don't feel comfortable talking about these things, that's very understandable. And another reason I wrote the book is to hopefully encourage conversation so that people can say, well, that guy Mark said it and he's citing this research. So I don't feel as crazy, but initially I didn't want to talk to people about it. As I became more confident in the research and kind of framing things in my mind, about how it all fit together, I began to tell friends and family members about what I was learning. And the reactions were generally very positive. And they were like, oh my goodness, that's real. That's mind blowing. And I was getting those reactions all the time. Mm -hmm. So 
it was a year's worth of just researching, like I mentioned, and starting to tell people about the information and getting really positive feedback. And that led me to say, well, what if, what if I wrote a book about this and just put it all together? And it was not something I had planned on doing. I never wanted to be a writer, but I got this big surge of passion really in late June of 2017, where I decided I was going to write, kind of put together an outline. And in my day job at Sherpa Technology Group, we advise tech companies and we build narratives on, on explaining intellectual property and, and patents in particular to boards of directors. So we're used to taking really complex technologies and converting it into market and business language for business leaders. So that I use it. It comes full circle. It comes full circle. So this for me was just sort of like another project that I, in, in some ways, easier than the work projects that I do, where I said, oh, wow, it's just the same thing. So I put together a narrative and then I filled it in. And I, I spent 4th of July weekend in 2017, which was a long weekend. I, I ended up writing more than half the book in that long weekend because I had structured it in my mind and I had spent so much time researching. So then I ended up finishing the book over the next um, few weekends. And that's, that's the book that came out in October of 2018. So what I, the way I, I framed the book, and this, this comes after a synthesis of looking at these disparate pieces of information, I realized that everything comes down to thinking about our own consciousness. So when I say consciousness, I mean our own subjective inner experience. When I say that I am speaking to you right now, that I is what I mean by consciousness. Mm -hmm. The conventional view is that that I, that feeling of I, comes from the brain. So we've got lots of complex chemicals happening in our skull, and then magically consciousness comes out. I had never even thought to question that. Mm -hmm. So that's the conventional paradigm. It's known as materialism. And even more fundamentally than the brain creating consciousness, it's that matter creates consciousness. So physical material, like my table, is made out of atoms of matter. And this big universe we're in has lots of matter everywhere. And the theory is that 13.8 billion years ago, there was an event that started this material universe, typically called the Big Bang. There was matter flying around everywhere. And you're bound to end up with matter interacting with other pieces of matter in the big universe that we're in. And that's called chemistry. And when you have enough random chemical reactions in this universe, you're bound through chance to end up with a molecule that can replicate itself. That's like DNA. So DNA leads to the evolution of a human or other organisms. The brain then comes through evolution and then consciousness comes out. So matter creates consciousness through a brain. And that is the materialist paradigm that I challenge in the book. Which is also just intuitively as a human being who's experienced the magic and wonder of life. That just sounds so cold and soulless, <laughs> you know? It's like, it's all a bunch of random accidents and, and then this magical universe with life and love and, and connections is nothing but a bunch of chemical reactions that happen randomly. It's, it's kind of a depressing paradigm. It, it is, it is, but, and I think it's what our science and our education systems are teaching. Sometimes it's implicit that this is the way the world works and it's a bleak outlook, but that's the outlook. So we kind of have to deal with it. And, and I think I was probably opposed to anything transcendent because I thought it sounded too comforting to be true. So I think I falsely reasoned, oh, well, those comforting ideas must be false because people are just rationalizing and saying, oh, maybe there's life after death because if there weren't life after death, that would be too depressing for me to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I kind of discounted those theories without having ever looked at the science. But now I realize where my, my, my logic was off. 
is that I concluded that because something was comforting, it followed that it had to be false. And it is possible that something could be both comforting and true. And to me, that's what the science suggests. Yeah, you know, that assumption that thank you for your humility and honesty to actually know that we all have these limiting beliefs that we don't even know are there. In a way, that's a kind of religion that pervades in our society as not actually logical scientific thinking. You know, if we want to just be pure rationalists, it's actually also irrational, these kind of materialistic ways of looking at reality. Yes, yes. And I actually start the book with the kind of the logical argument, a philosophical argument, whereas most of the book is scientific. Mm -hmm. Because the, the materialist paradigm says that matter came first, and then consciousness randomly came about through these chemical reactions, and then a brain formed, and then somehow consciousness came out of the brain. But if we think about the nature of experience, all experience is subjective. So this universe that we're in, this room I'm in, everything that I ever experience is through the lens of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Anything that's ever experienced is through the lens of consciousness. So to assume that there's something material outside of consciousness, that is definitely possible, but it is not ever verifiable. It's always an inference to say that there's something material outside of consciousness. So, the, so if we think about the materialist paradigm, matter creates consciousness. It requires this leap of faith that anything could pre-exist consciousness, which again is possible, but it requires the leap of faith. Whereas if we flip it around and say, no, consciousness is primary and everything that's experienced is within consciousness, that is actually arguably a more skeptical argument because it starts with the one thing that we can prove, which is that we're all conscious. I'm conscious right now. It's the only thing I actually know. So it's for this reason that Albert Einstein, when he was pushed on this um, around 1930, he said, he was a materialist, he said, I cannot prove that my conception is right, but that is my religion. So he humbly acknowledged wow. that materialism is a form of religion in that it relies on a leap of faith, that there exists something outside of and before consciousness. Okay, so let's continue that fascinating journey as your old paradigm breaks. What are the pieces of evidence that were really like big aha moments for you on that journey? Well, there were definitely many scientific pieces of evidence, and that's what the book is full of. But in parallel to that, I explored uh, with psychics and energy workers because I wanted to see if these things were real and if I could personally verify any experiences. And what I was finding is that there were people that could know or do things that I could not explain with conventional science, but it was lining up with the research that I was seeing. So my path was kind of an experiential path to some degree, and then it was largely a research path. So I do want to make that clear to your listeners that I think that's probably what helped me get, get over the hump in certain cases, is that I had these undeniable experiences where I'm talking to a psychic over the phone who like knows something that she could never find out on the internet. And it's so specific that I couldn't come up with any rational reason beyond something going on with consciousness. So when you have that plus research at really credible institutions, that's what started to shatter the paradigm. And another point for your listeners is that it wasn't an overnight process in that it wasn't like one piece of evidence just suddenly shifted my worldview. It was gradual. So I'd learn of something and I'd say, wow, that's really interesting. And if that's real, then things need to change. And then I would be in the real world again. And I would like come back. So I would take two steps forward and then one step back because I'm in a day job and I live in San Francisco and it seems so material. Yes. But 
it, it, maybe there was a tipping point a few, probably six weeks or so in, and then certainly multiple tipping points where I, the amount and credibility of the evidence I was seeing was so overwhelming that I couldn't even reason going back to the old worldview. So the more I piled on, the more improbable the materialistic view seemed to be. And again, what I'm hoping to do in the book is to make that journey more efficient, where hopefully if you read the whole book and you see the independent pieces of evidence, which we'll discuss, it becomes really hard to shoot every single one of them down. So what I realized in my journey is that the real issue is the lack of exposure in the mainstream society to the pieces of evidence. And I think most people are, are very rational in their worldviews, like my materialistic worldview. I think it was actually pretty rational based on the evidence set that I was exposed to. I didn't even know that there was this other set of evidence. And that's hopefully what will happen to those who read the book is they say, oh my goodness, there's this new whole, huge body of evidence that I have to somehow reconcile with my old worldview. And that's where the conflict can begin. So tell us just some, I mean, I hope everybody listening, run out there and get this awesome book. I mean, it's like this is years and I don't know how this guy did it in a couple of years to master this much information and synthesize it so beautifully. It took me decades of exploration to get to this condensed level of understanding. So super bravo on that. Um, give us some highlights. So in terms of the evidence, um, it's the book is divided into two sections. And I talk about quantum physics as well as kind of an underlying uh, aspect of reality that's important to understand because there are aspects of quantum physics such as entanglement where you have two particles that are physically distant from each other. When you affect one, the other one is affected at the same exact instant, which suggests that there's some kind of interconnectivity that our eyes don't show us. And that's one example. But I think it's important to acknowledge that the, the fundamental physics of reality is counterintuitive. So it should therefore not be totally surprising that there could be phenomena in that world that are also counterintuitive. And that's the chunk of the book is uh, a section on psychic abilities and the evidence for psychic abilities and survival of bodily death, meaning the body dies, but consciousness doesn't die. And there are, sub there are chapters within each of those. Within the psychic abilities section, there's a chapter on remote viewing, which is the ability to perceive something at a distance, meaning theoretically I could sit here, go into a trance, and draw out on a piece of paper what's in Africa somewhere, something I've never seen. So it's like accessing something non-locally with the mind. Telepathy is another example I explore, and that's mind-to-mind -mind communication. Precognition is knowing or sensing the future before it happens. Animals who have these abilities, I, I have a chapter on that. Psychokinesis, which is the ability for the mind to actually affect physical matter. And that makes sense, at least conceptually, if we think of consciousness as being the basis of reality, then it's almost like the physical world is malleable. And when we get down to the atomic level, it starts to get pretty weird because atoms are mostly empty space. And then we see with some of the experiments in quantum physics that unless you're looking at the atom, it's not behaving like a particle. It behaves like a wave. But when you look at it, it behaves like a particle. So there's, there's some malleable aspects of reality, even from a conventional scientific perspective. And psychokinesis suggests that the mind can sometimes have an effect on the world, even if it's just a subtle statistical one. So that's the psychic ability section as a summary. And then I explore phenomena suggesting that consciousness survives when the body dies. Near-death experiences is one area. Communications with the deceased, such as mediumship, and that's where a person can speak with someone who has died and lose their consciousness. Mm -hmm. And a chapter on children 
usually between the ages of two and five years old, who seem to be able to remember previous lives. And those are studies from the University of Virginia. <laughs> There's so many directions that I want to take this, this conversation. Let's go into the root cause level. Why is this not in the mainstream? Why is it just kind of like there's some kind of Hollywood movies or TV shows about mediumship you hear once in a while or science fiction movies, but actually this is reality. Why is this not more mainstream than it is? This is something I really had to dig into when I wrote the book because I was asking myself the same question of like, oh my goodness. There's a theory going on. What's going on if there's this much evidence in these different areas? Because a near-death experience is pretty different than a telepathy study. And yet they're related to consciousness and they're both kind of types of anomalies. And what I realized is that it's almost like a sweeping under the rug of anything that doesn't fit the, the mainstream paradigm by the conventional scientific community. That's the general trend that seems to be happening. And those who are studying these, these phenomena, even very credible people like Brian Josephson, who won the Nobel Prize in physics, he was told not to speak at a conference, a scientific conference, because he has interests in telepathy and psychokinesis. And the conference only wanted scientific topics. I mean, so he, it's, it's unbelievable that even if you are that credible as a scientist, if you touch on these areas, it can be damaging for your career. So you can imagine if you're, let's say you're not a Nobel laureate or you're not someone who has tenure in academia, is it worth it to risk talking about telepathy or being interested in studying these things? It, it, it becomes a risk to one's career. And I actually spoke with a scientist who was at a very mainstream institution um, and she, she studies precognition which is the ability to know the future before it happens. And that was on her resume, in addition to other things she studied. And she was told by, by her advisors, like, your resume is great, but you should just take off a precognition if you want to continue advancing. So she ended up leaving academia. But long story short, I think these are some of the dynamics that are happening behind the scenes, where there is kind of an entrenched worldview of it's the materialist perspective, and anything that is challenging that is simply impossible. So if you're looking at it, you are crazy. And that dynamic is holding back, I think, a lot of scientific progress. And fortunately for all of us, there have been some very brave scientists throughout the years who have decided to study these things. And many of them endorse your book. They are so thrilled and so proud that you decided to devote your life to do this work, you know, because you're kind of a, you're a hero to many of us who really want this, this information to to be given a more serious look, a more logical, grounded, scientific kind of journey that you can take us on. Well, thank you very much for saying that. And, and I agree with you. And I think this is probably why I felt so compelled to write the book and write it so quickly, is that this is, this is an important topic for thinking about reality. And it has implications for science, for medicine, for how we think about our own lives. And so it's not just a scientific exploration or an academic exercise. This is really an existential thing for individuals and for the whole planet. So it's important, I think, that people who have been studying these things and who have had personal experiences, that we get that information out there to the general public. So in the old paradigm, we thought there was a big bang, but nobody explained where the big bang came from. And then there's there's matter comes out of that and random chemical reactions and DNA, then the brain, and then out of the brain came consciousness. When the brain dies, consciousness is dead. There's no life after death, nothing. In the new paradigm, can you step us through the framework that you've put together? Yeah, and this is why the book is called An End to Upside Down Thinking. 
the materialist paradigm, and I, I draw out triangles in my book, and, and these are actually adapted from Dr. Dean Radin at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where you have matter at the bottom, and like you said, we get move up to chemistry, then biology with DNA, then a brain, and then consciousness at the top. Matter creates consciousness. This is why the book's called An End to Upside-Down Thinking. Consciousness, under the model that I'm endorsing, is at the base of the triangle. Consciousness is primary. So we don't wipe out matter. We don't wipe out chemistry or biology or even brains and neuroscience. We're just recontextualizing them as being within consciousness. So one of the things I also didn't realize in my research, oh, there's there it is. Dr. E is showing the triangles. Yeah, so those of you that are listening, I'm showing the triangles, but it's just a tease because you got to go buy your own version of this book. <laughs> but it, it's a massive paradigm shift. I mean, the materialist worldview is like the paradigm underlying all paradigms. And to say that the place and role of consciousness this basic aspect of our existence is placed in the wrong area of the triangle. It's a huge deal to move consciousness to, to being primary and it kind of existing beyond all space and time. But a point I wanted to make is that I, I was shocked in my research to learn that science has a big question, even in the mainstream world, about how the brain could produce consciousness. Because the brain is physical. It's a physical structure, just like my body. Like I can touch my arm, I can touch my head, I can touch my leg. If you ask me to touch my awareness or my consciousness or my mind, what do I, it's not physical. So this is why there's a hard problem of consciousness. And Science Magazine has called it the number two question that remains in all of science, which is how is it that physical biology, you can touch your biology, how does it create consciousness that you can't touch? The conventional view is, well, it's just complex reactions and somehow there's magic and subjectivity emerges from material that has no subjectivity in it subjectivity and, and something non-physical emerges. So I think it's important to note from a mainstream standpoint, I always like to talk about that when I speak with people who are not familiar with these ideas, because it kind of brings us all back to a baseline set of assumptions of, wait a second, science does not know how a brain could ever produce consciousness. Science thinks, for the most part, that consciousness emerges from the brain and that we haven't figured it out yet, and someday we will. We just haven't figured it out. But at least there's an acknowledgement that we don't know the answer to this question. And of course, my, the answer from my perspective is we are asking the wrong question. Yes. When we ask what is the biological basis of consciousness, like Science Magazine is, that assumes that there is a biological basis of consciousness. Right. If there isn't a biological basis of consciousness, of course, we would never be able to solve the question. It's an unsolvable, it's like a trick question. If consciousness is primary, it's not dependent on biology. So, yeah, that is scary and exciting at the same time. If I love that you said this is the paradigm that underlies all paradigms that we have to question because it means that we've been barking up the wrong tree completely in every arena of life. This is partly why it was so difficult for me when I learned of this material because I realized what a big deal this is. And then for me to walk around in the world where I, I knew that most people around me had no idea about these things. And if this alternative paradigm is true, then that means many people are walking around in their lives just like I was with a completely warped view of reality and who and what they are. So it can be, it's, it's kind of an isolating experience to get there. And I hope that with more conversation out there, more people can, can feel open to explore these things. 
Yeah. It takes tremendous courage to explore this because it means we've all, not just the scientists whose tenures and research funding and all of this depends on it, all of us are part of this. We're all guilty of, of living life that feeds into that old paradigm that is false. And we all have to come up with the courage to say, you know what, I've been barking up the wrong tree and most of my way of investing in life has been based on some false assumptions about life and reality. And wow, it means it could, you could have a whole identity crisis. Yes, yeah, and we see- Into this work. Well, we see that from people who experientially know this, and that might be in near-death experience or in meditation or taking psychedelics, where there's an altered state of, altered state of consciousness that's felt in a subjective way that sometimes you can't put into words very well for someone who hasn't had the experience. And with the near-death experience, for example, many people come back and they get divorced, they change their job because they feel the oneness, they feel the interconnectivity, they talk about unconditional love and they just reprioritize everything because they realize that what's happening in the material world is kind of like a temporary stop for consciousness. Like we come into the world, when we get here, there's nothing physical that we possess. And when we leave the body, we have nothing physical. So the focus or emphasis on material things, if you buy into that, has to be totally recontextualized. It's not like it doesn't matter because we're still living and we have to grow. But what seems to matter is how our consciousness is evolving because that's what we take with us. Yes. And thank you for citing my experience in that realm too. You know, when I was in Chinese medicine school, I had this. Um, very unplanned, spontaneous, mystical experience during Qigong practice. And um, it was like the most loving, blissful, you know, if you look into the eyes of a baby or a loved one or the most beautiful sunrise or sunset you could possibly fathom times one million, it was that intensely beautiful and blissful, just complete oneness with all of creation and then you come back into this material reality it was literally painful that was my experience it was a painful experience to reconcile what what just happened with everything that i've been taught all my life and i would say i probably wasn't clinically depressed but it was something like that other people might call it a dark night of the soul when your whole paradigm is busted and you have to put together a new understanding of reality, it is very uncomfortable. But you have no other choice at that point, you know? Right. And your story, it's, it's so commonly reported. And I love the way you put it in your book. And that's why I included your story. And you have such a credible academic background and such, you're such an awesome person that for, for people like you to be reporting these experiences kind of spontaneously in meditation or, or doing some kind of a practice, when you combine that with people in, on psychedelics like DMT, yes. someone who has a near-death experience, all of these things together, wait, how is it that everyone's reporting the same thing? And they all say that it's hard to put into words. And they all say that there's an interconnectivity. One might argue, well, it's no, it's because of things that are happening in the brain, chemicals that are just reacting in a certain way. But then there's evidence that suggests that this is happening when a brain isn't even functional, like in the near-death experience. Mm -hmm. So if we buy into that, then these experiences, like the one that you had, these are versions of kind of tapping into a state of consciousness or a reality that we're just simply clouded from because of the way our biology is set up. Our brain is almost like a filter or a limiter of consciousness. And when these things happen, it's like the filter is unlocked 
and there's this broader reality that's always been there that we can suddenly experience. Talk more about that. In your book, and your research, you had some other additional evidence that I hadn't heard about how, because I had been exposed to this idea that the, the brain is a transmitter and receiver of consciousness, but the limiter piece, how did you come up with that, that idea? So the, the brain as an antenna, I think, is a really good metaphor, kind of as a gateway, because it helps people understand, I think, at a very understandable level, that there is a consciousness that is non-local to the body. If, it's an if the brain's like an antenna, that means it's receiving our consciousness from somewhere else. And that's a helpful first step, because we're taught to think that our consciousness comes from our body and resides just in our body. The antenna says, no, something is non-local. The issue with that analogy is that it creates a separation between the receiver and then the consciousness that's receiving it, where I now come out to a reality where everything is actually interconnected. So the, the, the separation is kind of a dualistic perspective, whereas I, I think it's more of a non-dual reality where there aren't two. So how can we, what other kinds of metaphors can we come up with? And this is why I like the filtering mechanism version, where reality is kind of all pervasive and the brain is a limiter to that it's almost like if uh sun the sun is consciousness the brain and our thoughts and our emotions and the things that we experience they're like clouds in the sky so the sun's always shining it's been shining the whole time but what we experience as the individual can be clouded and we can have rays blocked mm -hmm. so what happens if some of the rays are removed i.e what happens if we reduce brain functioning or eliminate it then this model would predict that we would see enhanced or enriched consciousness. And we have multiple examples of that. And I think this is what you're alluding to. And meditation is one example. I don't talk about it clinically because it hasn't been studied in that way. But anecdotally, there are many cases of people who have been meditators who suddenly have these amazing experiences. But even on a smaller scale, even if it's like creativity or intuition where you're meditating and suddenly you get, you get some information and you don't know where it came from, that's almost like a ray getting through. To use the analogy, but the uh, example, the savants have brain damage, but they unlock these genius potentials. Yeah, so savants—that's one example that I reference, and I like that one a lot because savants are accepted as being real in the mainstream. And the movie Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman is after a real savant. So this, his name was Kim Peek. Um, these are people that have extraordinary memories. They can like memorize a whole book after it's been recited to them. They can memorize the index of an encyclopedia. Sometimes they have amazing musical capabilities. And at the same time, they are severely impaired. Sometimes their motor function is impaired. They can't speak well. Sometimes they can't do simple math. And yet they can recite prime numbers. There's like crazy stuff that these people can do. There's a small number of them who are truly prodigious, meaning they have these incredible abilities. But that should never happen under the conventional paradigm. How can it be that someone with an impaired brain has such extraordinary capabilities? The reason might be, at least in, in a general way, that the ways in which their brains are impaired actually allow them to receive information that a more conventional brain is clouding out. That's one way to think about it. And when you tack that on with near-death experience, which is where people, again, are having lucid memories, logical thought processes, when their brain is either fully off or highly impaired, that would match this theory. Psychedelics, we're seeing emerging studies where people have reduced brain functioning during their trips. So it's like removing the clouds when you take a psychedelic, maybe under certain cases. Mm -hmm. Terminal lucidity. These are cases 
and the University of Virginia has studied this. Um, I think hopefully more people will study it. These are people who have severe dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, or some kind of severe cognitive impairment. Mm -hmm. And usually days before they end up dying, all of a sudden they snap back into it. Like, can you imagine someone who has Alzheimer's? They've been out of it for years. And then they start speaking to you like nothing happened. And then they die a few days later. So again, we have a brain that we know is impaired, and yet there is lucidity that is occurring with that impaired brain. So when you put all these examples together, it starts to point in the direction of a paradigm that views the brain not as the producer of our conscious experience, but actually that which limits our conscious experience. Wow. Okay, so back to my previous question, can you step us through this new framework of the new paradigm where consciousness is at the root, and then what else? Yes, so consciousness is at the root, but everything else stays the same. And so the materialist paradigm started with matter, and then we got to chemistry, to biology, to brains, and then it was consciousness. But matter, chemistry, biology, brains, those are all still real phenomena that we should be studying. It's just that they're, they're all within consciousness now. Consciousness is not the byproduct of all of them. And I think it's also important to note that very smart people have been saying this for a long time, and particularly the early quantum physicists who realized that, that consciousness might be playing a role, which is a controversial thing to say for a physicist who typically studies the material world. It's like, what do you mean consciousness is getting involved? But people like Max Planck, he won the Nobel Prize in physics. He said in 1931, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. And he says, you cannot get behind consciousness. Yes. Maybe yeah. in the future, our consciousness will expand so far that we even see a deeper, deeper into the reality than we're perceiving. I had you so, you, so you came over to party at my house. Thank you so much. That was so much fun. And I asked you this very important question, which is the old paradigm is called materialism. This new paradigm where consciousness is at the root of it all is called what I'm currently calling it when I'm asked is, is it's unified reality where the, the old paradigm of materialism promotes a, a degree of separation that matter creates consciousness and each individual biological organism, me, you, Tom, Fred, each person is a person that has a consciousness, but they're separate consciousnesses. Mm -hmm. What this unified reality picture is saying is that consciousness is not only primary, but we're all interconnected as part of the same consciousness. So to use an analogy from Dr. Bernardo Castrup, who wrote a book that's called Why Materialism is Baloney. It's a very good book on the-, the Also. Yeah, but it's on the philosophy, more of the philosophical angles, although he does touch on science. Um, he, he, he uses an analogy that I always talk about, which is to say that imagine reality is like a stream of water, where water represents consciousness. Each of us is like a whirlpool within that stream, meaning, we have boundaries so that we can experience our own localized picture of reality. Yet at the same time, we are fundamentally interconnected as part of the broader stream. So that would explain how we're all having our individuated experiences where we're not experiencing what it's like to be the other person, aside from maybe some telepathy and things like that, but we're connected at, at the level of the stream. So this is why Erwin Schrodinger, the famous Nobel Prize winning physicist, he said, in truth, there is only one mind, and it's like the one infinite stream of consciousness of which we are a part. 
It's so beautiful and exactly what all the mystics of millennia have been saying, but finally science is, we go deep into science and physics and the deeper we go into physics, we come full circle back to the mystical traditions. That shocked me too, because I, I probably wouldn't have been opposed to any tradition that bordered on religion before I got into my research, because I would have said, well, who wrote the scriptures and how do we know what they were saying was real? And I just had lots of questions about it. But now when I look back at all of the traditions and typically the mystical sects of each tradition, whether it's the Eastern religions or Kabbalah and Judaism, Gnosticism and Christianity, Sufism and Islam, uh, you know, cultures around the world are talking about kind of this unified reality where consciousness is primary. So when you put that on top of everything else, it's like, wait a second, Maybe there's a reason people have been saying these things for millennia and now science is catching up. It's everything points in the same direction. Yeah, I think I'm not a religious person, but I would like to think that I'm committed to my spiritual understanding of life. And um, from my perspective, the things that gives many people heebie-jeebies about religion is that we use it to persecute, to kill, to go to war, to pillage, to dominate. And... What we don't like about that is this idea of separation, right? That the things that make us want to run away from religion is that rigid, separated, you must believe in my God or else you're a bad person and going to hell. These are the, the ideologies that are actually not based on this new science. Yeah, maybe that was one of my contentions as well is that it, it, it creates, the religions that I knew about in the, in the rudimentary understanding I had implied that there was a separation between belief systems and that they couldn't all be right by definition because they're not all the same. So someone had to be wrong and that kind of bugged me too. Now the way I look at things is that, especially with the mystical traditions, is that they're all saying the same thing, but just from different perspectives. Um, so now I look at things very differently and it's actually interesting to hear religious perspectives because now I might hear something and say, oh, maybe they meant this when they said that. Uh, but to me, just maybe because we're born in this era, having the scientific backing and that kind of a framework is really important for me as a starting point. I loved in your book, I love that you ended actually chapter 13, the last chapter of your book is my favorite by far. I think that could be his own book. Maybe that's book number two coming through soon. Um, you spend a section on each of the areas of life that this new paradigm could, the implications in, in health, in science, in society, in technology, and so on. So many juicy things to ask you about. Can you give us a little tour of implications so we can start thinking about, wow, this is going to be the listeners out there that are listening to this may be scientists, maybe doctors, healers, and maybe technologists. So take us through that journey. Sure. Well, thank you for mentioning it. I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed that chapter. To me, it's the most important chapter, but because of where our society is, I think it required 12 or 12 and a half chapters to get to the stuff, to the really key implications. But I, I had to structure it that way because if I started with those implications, I know my old self would have immediately closed the book. But after you've, heard, you've read 12 and a half chapters of the science and why the science seems to be suppressed or swept under the rug, it's like, wait a second, these implications, actually, we should, we should be considering them. 
So one, I'll start with, to me, what is the most important implication? It's the very last one. We talk about, we think about world peace and the problems we see in the world today and fighting between nations and also between individuals. When I look at the problems in the world today now, I now think they're all, they're not based on individuals that are just being bad. And if we take this person out of office or get rid of these people in this country, then things will be better. Those are all kind of symptoms of an underlying disease. And the disease to me is the belief, the false belief that we're separate and that we're finite beings, meaning we have a life and once we, we die, it's over and our consciousness uh, disappears. If, but if we're not finite, meaning if our consciousness continues, and if we're not separate, like if we're all connected in the stream of consciousness, then all of a sudden, harming others becomes irrational, actually irrational, because then you are harming yourself by harming another. So like, I, th I just think a lot of the solutions I now hear about to the world's problems seem like band-aids to me. The problem is a misunderstanding of reality. We need to pause, just take that in. Yeah. 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 I, I can, it, again, I can say that now, and for listeners who are not as familiar with the science, it might be like, wait a second, you just jumped 30 steps ahead. And I know it might sound like that, and that's why the book is structured with all the science. It does take some time to internalize that idea, because it really is a radical shift for thinking about basic things like altruism. And biologists have been looking at this for a long time, like, wait, if it's survival of the fittest, then why is it that creatures are nice to each other? Is it just about promoting the collective gene pool and that's a way of doing it? Or is there something else going on? From my perspective, maybe there is an evolutionary element to altruism and there might, that might be a factor, but probably the fundamental aspect is, is the notion that we're connected. So altruism, helping others, is a form of selfishness. Because it's like, oh, there's me in another form of consciousness, in another physical form, but we're the same consciousness. And when I'm helping another, I'm helping myself because we are the same self. So I've heard Charles Eisenstein and also who shared the stage with you at a science and non-duality and also um, take not Han whose books I love. I follow his work so much. It's so near and dear to my heart. They've talked a lot about this term interbeing, not interdependence, not interconnectedness, but interbeing. And that's really what your research is pointing to is living life from the state of interbeing Everything is different. Yes, yeah. And it, but it's so hard for us to conceptualize, especially if we haven't had one of these extraordinary experiences because it seems like we're so separate. So it can be really difficult. But I think, again, going back to the near-death experience, people often talk about a life review where they experience their whole life in a flash. Again, this is when their brain is off where it's highly impaired. So it's, like, it's hard to reason that how this could be happening with no brain. Um, but they're recalling all the life's, their life's events, and they're judging themselves for how they acted towards people. They're not judging themselves for how big their house is. It's like, I was mean to this person, and they feel badly about it. But in the context of this lack of separation, sometimes people experience the, near -death ex the life review in the near-death experience through the eyes of the people that they affected. So let's say Bob is in his life review, and he was really mean to Jane at one point in his life he might relive that event through Jane's eyes and experience the pain that he inflicted on her. So he's seeing it from a different vantage point. And it's like we're the same consciousness just switching lenses in this alternative dimension or whatever it is mm -hmm. in the near-death experience. But again, it points to this idea experientially for those who have had it that we are the same consciousness and how we treat others is, has an effect on us because we're all the same interbeing, to use that term. Yeah. 
Yeah. Why do you think that we don't have access to that state of being? Like our commonsensical, I've heard you talk in some of your other talks, is that the old physics, the old paradigm is a good estimation of our commonsensical experience of life. Like Newtonian physics, we know if you drop an apple, it falls on the ground and we experience these separate bodies. Why is it that, is it our education and upbringing that doesn't cultivate this experience of oneness that we've been kind of educated out of that natural connection with one another? That's a really good question. I, I'm not sure if, if science knows the answer to this one or if we ever could know exactly why, but I, I wonder if that's part of it, that we're kind of conditioned to look one way when reality is the other way. So it makes it really hard unless we have an extraordinary experience for reasons that sometimes they're spontaneous and other times they're induced by an accident or some or substance. So maybe that's part of it is that we're encouraged to look the other way. Maybe it has to do with kind of the overall state of the stream, so to speak, the level at which the stream is operating in terms of our, how evolved we are as a collective consciousness. If we think of ourselves as being this interbeing, maybe we're just at a certain state where we're kind of immature and therefore we're not seeing reality properly because we still have a long way to grow. I don't know the answer. And, and maybe it's, maybe it's like part of what it's like to be a human being where we just don't have access to these things and we're seeing how we can act even though we don't see that other reality. So like the near-death experience, the life review, it's a way to see how we did while we were veiled from the truth of reality. So maybe it's also part of the design so that we can have these experiences and really test ourselves. Learn what it's like to live in separation so that we understand unity even more deeply and profoundly when we open, clear the veil, so to speak. Right. And I've heard the hypothesis that the whole purpose of life to the extent that we can understand it. And I'll preface this by saying, I think when we ask why questions, why is this happening? Why is that happening? It's almost like it might not be possible for the linear human mind to actually comprehend it. We can give estimations, but it's, it's sort of like, I heard this analogy once and I can't remember the exact source. If you imagine that we're living in 2D land, like two dimensional land, we're a flat piece of paper. Imagine that a sphere comes through it. So a round sphere, it initially hits the piece of paper and everyone in 2D land's like, oh my God, there's a point. A point just showed up because it's the point of the sphere. And then it's the sphere goes first. It's a book called Flatland. It's an that's, actual book, yeah. That's, yes, I've heard about it. I have not read it. It's but, great, it's a tiny little book, yeah. But it's a great analogy. So the sphere goes further down and everyone says, oh my goodness, there's a circle. So we saw a point and a circle, but we missed the whole point. It was a sphere the whole time. But because we're living in 2D land, we only can capture and grasp a limited view. But with that preface, a theory I've heard from many people is, is kind of what you said, which is that we're, we're like one big consciousness that somehow we've gotten in this veiled state where we've forgotten our nature as consciousness rather than just being the body. And maybe the task is for us to collectively re-remember ourselves as what we actually are. Wow, so beautiful. There have been so many things you've said tonight that, that could be, you know, quotes on a plaque or a tattoo or something. So many beautiful things to contemplate. So I'd love to speak with you forever and ever. And I hope that we can have a part two to this conversation down the line because there's many things that I think our audience, we're all digesting. You've blown our minds so much that we need to just sit and integrate. You've shared so beautifully that your friends 
as you started sharing these explorations with your friends, a lot of people just said just by being, they didn't have to go take ayahuasca or go onto a mountain and meditate in a cave, but just being exposed to some of this information made them start looking at reality with brand new eyes and a lot of transformations have already happened. Yeah, it's amazing what I've seen with, with the transformations of my friends. We would, we would have a dinner and I would talk about the ideas and they would say months later, like I'm still thinking about the topics in, in our dinner. And that's why I felt compelled to write a book and to speak about these topics because I never know who's going to hear the interviews and it might shift someone's life. Maybe not overnight, but it's like opening up the door to this other realm where maybe when you were trying to come up with explanations before, you only thought over here. But now it's like, well, maybe it's over here. But then there was this guy, Mark, who was explaining science of this stuff too. So then you at least start to consider both, even if you don't buy into it. And I think that act alone, at least what I found, is that it opens things up for people. And people tell me about like the crazy synchronicities they start happen having, where things, there are these coincidences that they have a hard time reasoning are actually coincidences once they open up to these ideas. So I'm really excited for more and more people to explore it. Yeah, my husband and I joke about, you know, little things that happen in day to day life. He's like, Oh, is that what needed to happen in your life review? Are you gonna have to look at that from different perspectives in your life review? You know, like if somebody like cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, want to do road rage, you're like, Oh, I better not it's gonna show up in my life review. Better be nice to that guy. It's a big deal. If you really internalize that idea, it makes you think about things totally differently. But at the same time, we are in human bodies and we have animal instincts because our biology is evolved from, from animals. And we have, we have old instincts that cause us to have those kinds of reactions. So I think we also have to be um, kind to ourselves because it's like maybe there is this bigger consciousness that we're all a part of in this blissful state, but we're here in a body and we have to accept the limitations. Can you encapsulate how this information, this research has changed your personal life? How are you living your life in a different way now? It's changed things massively. And I used to think, as I, as I mentioned before, that life had no meaning. So when something would happen in my life, whether it was good or bad, I would say, wait a second, Mark, why are you getting so worked up about this? It's not going to matter when you're dead. And everyone's going to be dead. So it's not going to matter to anybody at some point. And I think that, again, it was a logical, very strict, but logical way of thinking about things. So now, uh, at the very least, there seems to be some meaning in the sense that consciousness is primary and that we are, we are the consciousness that experiences the body. That's kind of our identity. It's not the body that has a consciousness. We're the consciousness that's experiencing the world through a body. So that recontextualizing of identity alone shifts everything because now I view my identity differently. And I view other people and other things on the planet differently as being much more interconnected. And when I think about meaning, whereas before I didn't think there was any meaning, at the very least, there seems to be something to the life review, where maybe the meaning is, is to see how we treat one another because there's an interconnectivity. So I definitely think about interpersonal relationships in a different way. Not that I mistreated people before, but now there's this whole other level that I think about. And that's been a huge shift. And in terms of your professional life? It recontextualizes it. So the material world and material stuff, and like, like we talked about before, my background is in really investment banking and advising tech companies. I, I worked in investment banking at UBS, which is one of the big investment banks, during the financial crisis. I was there from 2008 to 2010. And I was in the group that advised 
the banks and insurance companies and asset managers that were going through all the problems. So I saw that world up close and personal. And now I work at a firm called Sherpa where I'm a partner and we advise tech companies on their intellectual property. So it's, it's still in the very much in the business world. And I, I think all of these things are still important because we do live in the physical realm and we have to produce things, goods and services for our bodies until we get to the point maybe where we don't, where we can thrive on the sun. But there, I know you're very familiar with things like that, but there seems to be a need in, in some way to, uh, to have goods and services in the world. So econ- the economics and the economy and society, these are all important things. And I view, I now view businesses kind of in that lens as serving this like evolutionary playground almost where consciousness seems to be here learning lessons and evolving while in the physical realm and the things that are happening physically are enabling that. So I do still think that business is really important and earning money is important because it enables people to do things. So maybe the biggest shift for me is in the way that I view how we can use our financial resources and the way to prioritize those things. And investing in ourselves is important, I think. And maybe the way we invest in ourselves is just a different way to think about things like our health and keeping our biology in good shape. Because if we're the vessel of consciousness, if we're the filter or the antenna, then we want that thing to be as pure and as good as possible so that we're picking up the signal and filtering properly. So I think there's been maybe more of an emphasis on health and investing in my own health in a new way. And I think that's been a shift for many people. Wow. Versus the old reality where, you know, making money for the sake of money, for amassing more goods, for consumerism, to the cultivation of your journey of learning and growth and evolution of your consciousness and the community's consciousness is, um, there's still, these things are money and all these other things are just resources and tools, but it sounds like realigning it in a different way. Yes, exactly. And when I was working before, I kind of hadn't thought all the way through where, yeah, if I, once I maybe make enough money or get to a certain point or reach these milestones, then I'll figure out what's next. And that's a mentality that I've seen a lot throughout my career and my life where people really haven't necessarily thought, not everyone, but many people have not thought, thought through to the very, very end. Well, okay, what happens if I have $10 billion in the bank? Then what? There's an assumption that, well, maybe I'll be happy at that point, but we've seen so many cases where that's not true. So it is kind of a recontextualizing of finances. And, and I think probably in, in many areas of the economy, people might be better served for their own well-being to think about those topics and really think about what makes them happy because maybe the things they're chasing and maybe they're unhappy doing it. And I have seen that in my career. Maybe they don't have to be unhappy doing it if, if they rethink their assumptions. You gave us a lot to noodle on. Thank you so much. For those of us who want to keep in touch and listen to more of your talks, more of your interviews, and read your book, where can we follow you? My website is my name, Mark Gober, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. And it has more information on me and my book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. And the book's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, many other bookstores. So that's a good place to start. Nice. And new projects that you're up to? I'm working on a podcast of my own, which is, is still a work in progress. But many of the people that I've mentioned in my book, um, recorded interviews with them and, and working with some producers on formats that would be best for it. So 
sometime in 2019, I think. It's, but like I said, the details are still being worked out. On my website and my mailing list, I will be announcing it and also through social media. So if we want to get in touch, we should go to markgober.com and opt into your email list so that we can stay up to date and yes. first listeners. Yes, yes. And also, if you're interested in listening to my interviews that I've done, like this one will be posted on my website. They're all posted on the media page. So you can listen to them there. Awesome. Okay, my last question, the most important question of all. This show is about stepping into and experiencing the next level of human possibilities. And this entire conversation has been perfectly aligned to that. Thank you so much. So many things. I think we're all kind of bubbling the main, you can kind of feel the matrix is shifting. All the listeners are like, <laughs> the gears are turning, but let's distill it down. If you were to give us one essence to follow, what is the single most important piece of advice after all of these years of research, so many books you've read, and all your personal experiences, what do you feel is the single most important piece of advice we should follow when it comes to stepping into our next level of human possibilities? Hmm. To me, it is rethinking identity. And I kind of was alluding to this before. The conventional view is that our identity is tied to our physical body and everything we experience is in our body and that's what we are. So when the body dies, it's over. But if our identity is the consciousness that experiences the body, so the body, under that perspective, is really both a perception, it's something I see, and a sensation, it's something I feel. But I, consciousness, am that which experiences the body, experiences the thoughts. So I, I my identity, one's identity, is tied to the consciousness, the awareness that experiences the physical world. That shift alone, I think, is, can be massively transformational. Thank you so much. And this is such a fresh new take on why the ancient mystics would have people sit in prolonged meditation just asking the question, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? In all the mystical traditions, you see some form of practice like this, where you just sit and contemplate, who am I? And um, You've pointed us full circle back into that beautiful experience of life again. Thank you so much. So much wisdom. So many good nuggets, you guys. If your mind was blown by that conversation, I encourage you highly to go back to the beginning and listen through again because there are so many powerful nuggets of wisdom that I think take some time to really integrate and sink in. And if you love this conversation, Mark's website has lots of other awesome interviews that talk about many different facets of this exploration too so the journey continues thank you so much mark for that awesome conversation so much gratitude for you and this beautiful work that you're doing thank you so much for having me and thank you for all that you're doing bye-bye bye-bye hi friends did you love that interview if you did please leave a review and share with all your friends so that many more people can benefit from these game-changing insights you can also go onto our website, dredithubuntu.com, and subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive free trainings and next-level ninja tools that we only share on our newsletter. Together, let's turn your life into a brilliant masterpiece.